Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To prepare our minds for this morning's study, I ask that uh, we'll call upon Joel later to come forth and read for us Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and I'm reading from the New King James. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law in sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin, sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is the life of peace, because the carnally minded is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can it be so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God but you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ he is not his but if Christ is in you the body is dead because of sin but the spirit is life because of righteousness But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God... These are the sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of bondage against, again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God to join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption 
the redemption of our body. For we were sinners, were saved in the hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit finds himself, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows that the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, he who predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. That when then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the word of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's with great pleasure I uh, call upon our brother John to give his concluding study. Here we are, end of a week. Done a lot of study this week, dug into a lot of scriptures. You all seem to be still relatively bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, despite a week of study and perhaps more significantly despite a night of warfare, as I understand, between the the boys and the girls. So let's let's focus on the, the topics that we have to look at today. We've looked a lot at the work of Jesus up to the point of his death and resurrection. And then we need to start questioning, what is he doing now? Um, What happened after the resurrection? What happened um, after his ascension? And so this is the... um, this, in, a, in its simplicity, is, is the question. What is the present work of Jesus? We know Jesus is at the right hand of God. What is he doing there? And I think this is an area where we um, all the time fight against the, um, the views that are out there at large in, in Christendom. And I'll, I'll try and uh, make, make that point in just a minute. 
So what is he doing there? I think if we were to, to start chewing on it, well, first of all, I mean, I've, I've tried asking a few of you, and, and um, you've had the similar reaction to when I've asked older people, which is, in general, we're pretty vague about this. We're not really sure what he's doing. We might end up with saying something about um, he's um, pleading to God on our behalf. He's, uh, he's our mediator. He's our intercessor. He, he takes our prayers and presents them to God. He asks God to forgive us. Those are the kinds of things that we tend to come up with when we're thinking about the work of Jesus. And um, if you turn to uh, 1 John 2, John's first letter, chapter 2, let me um, read to you um, how the NIV translates this. As I said to you earlier in the week, I love the NIV, but there are some times when it, does a, it completely botches the translation, where you see very much the, um, the, the um, uh, translator's bias. This is what it says, 1 John 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. That's what the evangelical translators of the NIV put. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. And that's strongly in line with the substitutionary view that comes from um, uh, that, that is there in the evangelical church and, of course, in other branches of Christianity, that you have this transaction that's taking on, that's taking place between God and, and, and Jesus. Um, in, in some versions of Christian theology, uh, they even use phrases like the economy of the Trinity, and they talk about the different parts of the Trinity as they see God and how they interact between them. Now, of course, none of this is scriptural. None of this is, is presenting the work of Scripture as we should understand it. But as I say, I think that we sometimes, um, we sometimes get influenced by these, and, and we could read something like this translation in the NIV, one who speaks to the Father in our defense, and might not notice that there's anything strange about it, anything odd about it. And yet when we listen to some of Jesus' words... We ought to think that there's something strange about it. Look at John 16, this first one up here. This is um, uh, just before his prayer prior to uh, Gethsemane. So it's, it's um, the last, last hours of his life. Verse 25 for connection. John 16. Though I have speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I'll no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So when we pray to Jesus, is he asking God on our behalf? Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm going to be doing. He says it in plain language there. And he says, it's not what I'm going to be doing because I don't need to be doing that. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed and trusted that I've come from the Father. And so what Jesus is doing is actually bringing us to the Father directly. So in our prayers, they are direct communication with the Father. The in Jesus' name is the is that we've come to God 
by the work of Jesus. He's the one that has drawn us to God. It's not that He has to translate our prayers, that He has to ask God, well, you know, would you please do it for them this one time? So another thing, we've talked about this in in a previous study, Matthew 28, after his resurrection, he says, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. And in particular, we've seen that this includes the authority to forgive sins. He had authority to forgive sins when he was here on earth. As savior judge, it's intrinsic in his job function that he has authority to forgive sins. So the idea that he goes to the Father and says, will you please forgive their sins one more time, does not make sense. Because if Jesus wants our sins to be forgiven, God has already given him the authority to forgive them. He could forgive them directly. He doesn't need to ask the Father on on, on, uh, our behalf. Even more, if you look at this passage in John 14, John 14 verse 9, again, another passage that we've gone to, a critical passage. Lord, show us the Father, verse 8 of John 14. Philip wants to see uh, see God. And Jesus says, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Everything I do, Jesus says, is manifesting God to you. I am showing you the Father. If you want to know the love of God, look at when I show love. If you want to know the compassion of God, look at when I show compassion. The anger of God, look at when I show anger. Everything about Jesus' life was tuning his will exactly to his Father's will. That prayer at Gethsemane sums up Jesus' life. Not my will, but your will be done. I have come to do your will, O Lord, as it is written about me in the book. And so if Jesus has completely tuned his will to his Father's will, can we imagine a situation where Jesus wants to forgive us and God doesn't? It doesn't make sense. Jesus' will is the same as the Father's will. So what we're going to do is try and um, sort out what seemed to be at first sight a, a couple of puzzles as we look at Scripture to see if we can figure out what's actually going on. What is the scriptural teaching about the work of Jesus, about the role that he has today? And we're quite used to the idea that on the face of it, you sometimes get some Scriptures which indicate one thing and some Scriptures which indicate another. And we have a good practice as a community of digging down and seeing really what the what the real meanings behind some of these things are so that we can, um, we can resolve the apparent contradictions. So what we're going to do this morning is look at four concepts. Now, any one of these concepts could be an hour's talk. So um, rather than keep you here for four hours, what we're going to do is um, do them quite quickly. The idea of mediator, the idea of priest, the idea of intercession, and then the comforter, the counselor, parakletos. So those are the four things that we're going to touch on. And as I say, we're necessarily going to have to cover them quickly and briefly. So let's start out with the idea of mediator. There's a a very common phrase that we use amongst us as a community, which is Jesus Christ, our mediator. 
Have you heard that phrase? I've heard it lots of times. Now, here's a scary thing. It's not biblical. There's actually a significant error in that. And I'd like to point out what the significant error is. Start with um, uh, uh, 1 Timothy. Come to, to Paul writing about Timothy. And what we'll do is we'll actually look at every time that this word mediator is used so that you can be sure that I'm not slipping something under the rug here. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Let's look at the context. We'll start with um, verse 3. He's talking about uh, earlier on there, um, thanksgiving for those in authority, um, uh, um, prayers for them. Verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior. Well, we're no longer surprised when we come across the phrase God our Savior. That's one of the principles that we've discovered previously. God is our Savior. It all starts with God. Salvation starts with God. God our Savior. God, verse 4, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So salvation is starting with God. He has a desire that we should be saved, that we should understand His truth so that we can turn to Him and be saved. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus. Now notice that we've been emphasizing up to now that the direction is from God to man that the, uh, the um, revelation, the desire is coming from God to man. And so, unless Paul is suddenly changing the direction, we have to have the same sense about the mediator. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, a testimony given in its proper time. To whom was the testimony of Jesus given? Was he testifying to God on our behalf? Or was he testifying to us on God's behalf? And of course, it was the latter. We didn't have the idea of having Jesus. We didn't train him. We didn't develop him. We didn't send him to to the Father. It's the other way around. It comes from the Father. It was His desire to reach out to us. And the mechanism by which He reached out to us was to have a Son, to mediate His message, to bring His message to us, to call us, to show us the truth, to make a testimony before us. And Paul continues in verse 7 that the process doesn't finish there. As we learn, so we continue in that direction of reaching out to others. Paul himself says he was a herald of the gospel, reaching out to others. So the direction, the whole of the momentum of that passage in 1 Timothy 2 is starting with God, coming to us. And Jesus is God's mediator. He's not our mediator. He's God's mediator. God has chosen him as the mediator to come to us. Let's look at the other times that the word mediator is used. And this is exhaustive. This is all the other times in the New Testament that mediator is used. Hebrews 8 verse 6, the covenant of which he is mediator. Hebrews 9 verse 15, 
Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Uh, 12, 24, he's the mediator of a new covenant. There's nowhere here the idea that Jesus is arguing to God on our behalf, that he's somehow an arbitrator between us and God. And that's how sometimes the notion of mediator comes across. As if we've got a dispute with God and God's got a dispute with us, and Jesus is trying to say, come on, can't we all agree? God is in the right place. What God has done is appointed a mediator to come to us and to draw us into that right place through the means of a new covenant. And so Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. You've come across the the word media. We talk about the media this, the media that. And what we mean is the, the channel of communication, the television, newspaper, radio, all these kinds of things. That's the media the medium by which communication is is done. And Jesus is the medium by which God communicates to us. God mediates his message through Jesus. It's in that sense he's the mediator. He brings the message of God to us. So let us not, when we're thinking of the phrase mediator, ever think that we have a situation where we're standing up and arguing with God that he should be different and that Jesus is joining in with us in that. It's completely different. God is telling us how we need to be. And Jesus is the mediator of that message. So let's look at the idea of priest now. What is the key role of a priest? Well, before I started doing these kinds of studies, if you'd asked me the question, I'd have said the priest, the main role of a priest was to minister at the tabernacle, was to offer sacrifices, um, and to present people's prayers to God. That's the role of the priest. Well, we've already talked about sacrifices. We've already seen from Psalm 51 and other passages, that God doesn't actually want dead animals. That's never been what God wanted. Of course, the law required that they be made, but it wasn't the dead animal itself that God was wanting. There's another um, example, and that's the quotation that I've got up here in 1 Samuel 15, 22. And um, you can turn to it, but let me just summarize it. In this situation... Saul thought that God wanted sacrifice per se. He's waiting. There's a battle about to happen. Samuel's not here. Samuel's not here. Where is Samuel? Samuel's not here. We've got this battle. Let's just offer a sacrifice anyway. And he's offering the sacrifice, and Samuel comes up. He says, what are you doing? He says, well, you you weren't here, and so we decided to just go ahead and offer the sacrifice. And Samuel says, don't you realize it's better to obey than to sacrifice? The sacrifice itself is not what God wanted. He wanted the response in the heart. He wanted the change in the individual that was associated with the sacrifice. And so if we say that the main role of the priests is to offer sacrifice, what we're saying is that the main role of the priests is to do the incidental bits, the bits that God doesn't really care about. Malachi has a great description of fundamentally what the role of the priest is. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 7. 
This is one of those gems of Scripture that's well worth underlining. Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. That's what a priest is. He is the messenger of God, the angel of God, as it were. Malachi is saying, you priests, you're saying all sorts of things. You've corrupted the Word of God. The lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. Men should be coming up to the priest and saying, tell us about God. And that's the role of the priest. The role of the priest is to be there in the community as God's representative to the people. The one who speaks on God's behalf. The one to whom people come to find out what it is that God is asking of them. He is the, and it's the phrase, angel of God. The Malak. Malachi is my messenger, my angel. The priest is the messenger of God bringing the message to the people. Bringing the love of God to the people. The compassion of God to the people. And so Jesus, as he's going around in his ministry, teaching the things of God, bringing the love of God, bringing the compassion of God, he is the priest of God. He is doing his priestly work. He is the messenger of God. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that this work is continuing even now. Again, one of the scriptures that we've... Um, come to a couple of times this week. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin." Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what a priest was there for, to help the people, to find out what the people needed in order to be able to respond to God, to find out how to serve God. And Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is that high priest who is playing that role. And he's a high priest who understands what we're like. We have confidence that he knows us. And so we can go to him. And we can say, I know that you know what it's like. And I'm struggling here. And I don't know what to do. And I don't know how to keep myself pure. And I don't know how to reach out with love in this situation. And I don't know how to respond in this other situation. And I don't know this and I don't know that. Help me. Show me. To find grace to help us in our time of need. He is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. From his lips we should seek instruction. And so we come to him. We come to him in prayer. We ask for his help. And he provides help to us. This is his role as high priest. Look at Hebrews 7. 
the beautiful extra piece here. Verse 23. Now there have been many, now there have been many of those priests, the previous priests under the law of Moses, since death prevented them from con- continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus, it says, has a permanent priesthood. Because he has a permanent priesthood, he's able to save us to the uttermost. He's able to save us completely. You see, the trouble is, you might have a priest in Israel who is helping you, who understands your particular circumstance, your particular weakness, who's been able to guide you, who's been able to encourage you, and then that priest dies. And now you have to go to another priest who doesn't understand you, who doesn't understand where you're coming from. And that's not the situation with Jesus. He knew you when you were born, physically and spiritually. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your temptations. He knows the times you've succeeded with his strength, and he knows the times that you've failed. He knows us, and so he is able to direct events in our lives in order to save us completely. He has this continual knowledge of who we are and what we need. Such a high priest meets our needs, says the writer to the Hebrews. Oh yeah, let me just, before I move on the slides, point out one other thing. Again, the direction is the same. It's from God to us. It's not that we chose him as a priest and we said, you'll be a good person, let's have you go and talk to God. God selected him. God chose him. God said, I want you to be the priest for these my people, to work with them, to to bring them to me. But there was a a phrase at the end of that last verse that we read that I'd like us to um, chew on a little bit, which is this notion of intercession. He always lives to intercede for them. And suddenly we read this and we think, oh, but you were saying that his work of the high priest is to work with us, but that passage says that he's pleading with God on our behalf. So I'd like to address this whole notion of intercession and show scripturally what intercession means. Let me tell you now, it doesn't mean pleading with God on our behalf. As I I said at the start, Jesus' will is a perfect expression of his Father's will. They are together. They are not separate. It's not the case that one of them is on our side and the other is not. And this passage from Romans is a tremendous one for demonstrating this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So let's look at this passage first of all. It starts off by saying, God is for us. I know it's there in the conditional, but but Paul is meaning us to say, look, this is an axiom, and now let's see what follows from it. God is for us. 
That's the first point. And he proves it by saying, I'm not going to spare my own son. This is how much I am on your side. So God is for us, and he proves it to us by not sparing his son. And Paul goes on to say, if he won't even spare his son, how will he not give us all things? What could mean more to God than his son? God is on our side. He proved it by giving us his son. As a consequence, he's willing to give us whatever we need. Um, Give us all things. So once we're in this situation... How can anyone bring any charge against us? Because, he goes on to say, it is God who justifies. So God is for us. He didn't spare his son. He'll give us all things. God is the one who justifies. Are you getting the message from Paul? God is on our side. Who is he that condemns? The uh, King James has an unhelpful couple of words in italics here where it says, it is Jesus Christ, or it is Christ Jesus. Um, This is a rhetorical question. Who is he that condemns? The answer is no one, because Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is also at at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So, where are we? God is for us. He proved it by giving His Son. He's going to be giving us all things. God justifies. Jesus Christ is at God's right hand and interceding for us. And so we suddenly say, but what does that mean for Him to be interceding with us when God is already on our side? God is already choosing to justify us. God is already choosing to give us everything. So we have to ask the question, where is it that we need intercession? With what do we have a problem? Do we have a problem with God? Or do we have a problem with sin? Where is the battle? You see, the idea that Jesus is pleading with God on our behalf suggests that the problem is with God. But the problem is not with God. The problem is with sin. Every day we confront King Sin, the wolf within us. That's where the battle is. And Jesus, this verse is telling us, is at the position of authority. He's God's right-hand man, the, the, um, if you like, the chief operating officer of the world. He's God's right-hand man, And he's interceding for us, presumably, where we need it. Let's look at some more passages about this, just to see it. Oh, here's the principle, first of all. God is on our side. Let's completely get that in our mind. God is on our side. We don't have a problem with God. The font is small. I apologize, but I wanted to put up all of the passages um, about uh, uh, intercession Um, including that one that we were just reading, who is he that condemns Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. Notice that it's not always the word intercede or intercession, because um, what I did was followed the the Greek word there, um, and uh, and the Greek word entunchano, the idea of pleading, appealing, interceding, intervening, that's the idea behind this word. 
which of these passages talks about appealing or interceding with God or to God? As one of them. Just one of them explicitly says so. Romans 11. Don't you know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he interceded to God against Israel. He appealed to God against Israel. Do you know the circumstance? Elijah looks around and he sees what's going on in Israel. He knows the law which says when the people turn away, God will not send any rain. And he says, God, the people have turned away. It's time to bring the discipline of drought upon this people. And so Elijah appeals for discipline to come on the people of Israel. There's another um, uh, one where um, this is, I I forget whether it's um, Festus or Agrippa, I think it's, it's Festus, the whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him, Paul, in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea. The, the idea of, of going into, getting in Festus' face and saying, do something about this man, do something about this man. Look at these other passages, though, that use the word intercede. None of them say interceding to God, not one of them. So if we conclude that he is interceding to God, that's our own derivation. That's our own reasoning, which has led us to read that into these passages. These passages don't actually say that he's interceding to God. What we've already seen from Romans 8 is that God is on our side. He doesn't need Jesus to appeal to him on our behalf. Jesus himself said that when you pray, I won't bring the prayers to the Father because the Father himself loves you. Because you have believed me, because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from the Father. Our problem is not with God. Our problem is with sin. And in a, in a metaphor, you can imagine us and the wolf and Jesus intervening in that battle day by day by day. So let's, um, let's see how some of these scriptures uh, work there. The, the one that we were reading in Hebrews 7, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede or intervene for them. He's always there, either him personally or his angels that he sends, the Father's angels, of course, that he's put under the authority of the Son. Jesus, our high priest, is there providing us with all the intervention we need when we're confronting king's sin. That's where our problem is. And that's where he's getting involved. And so, Romans 8.34, the middle one, now makes sense. Paul has just been saying, God is on our side. He's proved it by sending his son, giving his son up for us. He's going to give us all things. He's the one that justifies. Jesus is at his right hand, joining in the same work of intervening, getting involved in our lives. That's what God did by sending Jesus. He was interceding. He was intervening. He was shaking us up. He was getting in our face. He was saying, you've got to change. You've got to be different. And Jesus is doing the same. Romans 8. We don't know what we... The uh, second one from the top. We don't know what we ought to pray for. 
but the Spirit itself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. We're going to come back to this verse because I think that there's some tremendous things there. One of the things that um, we ought to bear in mind, again, is that it's very easy for us to be influenced by the church teachings around there. If you look at an evangelical text on this passage, they're very clear as to what this passage means. The evangelical understanding of this passage is that when we pray to God, we don't know how to express the things in a way that God is able to accept them. And so Jesus or the Holy Spirit gets involved and translates in in such a way that is acceptable to God. But what's that saying? What's that interpretation saying? Where is the lack? Where is the problem? The problem is with God. God can't understand us. That's what that's saying. And yet all of Scripture says God can understand us. God doesn't need an intermediary between us and Him to be able to understand us. If an intermediary is needed, it's we who need it so that we can understand God. So we, as I say, we'll come back to this passage. Um, But this passage should not be interpreted in terms of somehow our prayers being translated so that they can come to God. Um, If you want to do a little bit of chewing afterwards and thinking about it, this word groan occurs elsewhere in the same chapter. So look at the other use of the word groan in the same chapter. It's quite interesting to, uh, to compare it. I'll just leave you with that teaser. So here's the principle that we should be deducing from this, that Christ intercedes in our lives. The intercession is between us and sin. It's not between us and God. We don't need intercession between us and God. God is on our side. Sin is not on our side. Sin is the one that, God, uh, that Jesus uh, intercedes with. So let's take a couple of practical examples of this. Come to Luke 22. What does it mean, or what did it mean during the ministry of Jesus to intercede? Peter was going to go through a terrible time. Peter was going to come to the lowest point of his life because he will have denied, with curses called upon himself, he will have denied the man that he loves. Jesus knows that this is going to happen. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I'm telling you now, Simon, What's going to happen? You're going to go through a terrible trial. And I've prayed that you'll be able to come through the other side of this. Jesus is talking to Peter about the challenge that he's about to face. He's trying to have Peter prepared for the challenge 
that he's about to face. Come on a couple of verses. Verse 34. Peter says in 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you'll deny three times that you know me. Now, there's a beautiful little piece that's hidden in that. Notice in the first verse, he calls him Simon. In the second verse, he calls him Peter. If you look through, whenever anybody in the gospel is quoted talking to Peter, they call him Simon. When the narrator of the gospel talks about him, they call him Peter. It's consistent through the gospels. The reason is, Simon was his original name. Peter was the new name that Jesus had given him, but he didn't start using that new name until later on. So when people in the Gospels are talking to him, they call him Simon again and again and again. When the Gospels are written 20, 30 years later, he's now known to the whole community as Peter, and so the Gospel writers call him Peter. So, in the first of the verses that we read, Jesus is calling him by his usual name, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. In the second one, Jesus uses his prophetic name, if you like. He says, I tell you, rock, stone, that you're going to deny me. It's just a lovely touch that Jesus uses this name to remind Peter of what he's being called to, and that Jesus actually believes in Peter, that he'll be able to come through the other side, that he will be the rock, the stone. Verse 40 goes up to the Mount of Olives, and he says to them, to Peter, James, and John, pray that you will not fall into temptation. This is something, an instruction he gives to Peter. Peter, you pray now that you won't fall into temptation. Jesus is interceding between Peter and sin. Pray about it, Peter. Get involved. Don't just fall asleep. He comes back and he finds them sleeping. And he says, why are you sleeping? It's not that he wanted the company, it's that they had their own preparation to do. Why are you sleeping? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know what you're like, Peter. I know exactly what you're like, because I'm the same. You want to do the right thing, but your flesh is weak. So pray. And Peter sleeps. Jesus is arrested. Peter follows him, slips into the courtyard, warming himself by the fire. Aren't you one of the disciples? (laughs) Me? (laughs) No. Three times. We know the story. We know that it ends up being three times. So sometimes we have a sense that that's all it would have been. Something happens at that point. Jesus, perhaps because he's being taken from one place to another, turns and looks directly at Peter. That look 
wasn't a look of condemnation, I'm sure. It was a look of love. It was a look of compassion. I know your heart, Peter. I know what you're like. I know what you want to do. Look at where you are. Look at what you're doing. This is Jesus interceding at the, at the face of sin. Who knows how far Peter would have fallen? Again, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time. Maybe even nailing the nails in. Who knows? But Jesus is there, and he intervenes with that look, and Peter comes to himself, and he realizes what he is like, what he's done. Goes out, and he weeps, weeps bitterly. But he's been rescued. Do you see that? Jesus has rescued him from the depths to which he could have fallen. And then after the resurrection, there's a passage somewhere which says, the Lord has appeared to Cephas, to Peter. So there's a moment where Jesus, in his resurrection glory, goes, finds Peter, talks to him, rescues him, picks him up, lifts him up. And then they're walking along the Sea of Galilee. Peter, do you love me more than these? Lord, you know I love you. Three times, Lord, you know I love you. And what's Jesus doing? He's intervening in Peter's life. He's protecting Peter. He's strengthening Peter. He's, he's guarding Peter against sin. He's interceding on Peter's behalf. And if the situation with Peter is moving, the situation with Judas is even more so. This is a man that Jesus loved. We shared sweet fellowship as we went to the house of God. If it was another who was lifting up his heel against me, I could bear it. But it is you, my dear friend. And so there they are at the Last Supper in John 13. And he pleads with Judas again and again, sometimes in subtle ways of, Who is it, Lord? Someone says. John leans back against him. Who is it, Lord? And Jesus says, it's the one that I'm going to give the bread to. Takes the bread. And I think that Jesus didn't want Peter to know who it was. Peter had a sword, and we know that he was quite willing to use it. But he gives the bread to Judas. What do you think transpired in their eyes as Judas took that bread? Do you think Judas was in any doubt that Jesus knew what was in his heart? And again, what is there? Condemnation? You wicked, wicked man? Or appeal? You don't have to go through with this, Judas. And there's a knock at the door. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus says. 
And I don't think he means go and quickly get the soldiers, because all the work of Jesus from that point on shows that Jesus desperately needed the time. Judas went out, and Jesus, they finished the meal, they had the hymn, and then they left the upper room. He's not saying get the soldiers quickly. There's a knock at the door. Maybe somebody needs money. Judas has the bag. Go down, Judas. Give the money. Do it quickly and come back to me. Because if you're gone, I can't do anything. This is very um, powerful stuff. But it was night. And he went out. Look at John 17. John 17, verse 11. This is just half an hour later. And he says, I will remain in the world no longer but they are still in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. You put these men, these people, these disciples, into my care. And I have cared for them. I have brought them along. I have brought them to you. But I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be dead for three days. What will happen to them? What will happen to them while I'm no longer able to protect them? Holy Father, please protect them. He was worried. He was worried that it wouldn't just be Judas who confesses and goes out and hangs himself. Would Peter be alive at the resurrection? or any of the others who had fled when the soldiers came? Would their shame have overwhelmed them? Would they have done something foolish? Would they have been arrested? Jesus is not able to help them. He's not able to be there to succor them, to nurture them. Holy Father, protect them. And if Jesus did those kinds of things then, he says that he continues that kind of thing now. 1 John 2, verse 1, that verse that we started with. It is a use of the word parakletos, comforter, counselor. Substitutionary view wants us to think lawyer, advocate, that kind of role. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a counselor. Jesus, uh, we have a counselor with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Our counselor, says John, 
is with the Father. And he's the one, he doesn't counsel the Father. He doesn't argue with the Father. He's on the Father's side. He counsels us. He nurtures us. He works with us. The promise that he gave explicitly to the disciples back in John 14 was of a very similar nature. This is where that word paracletus is used quite a lot. John 14, um, verse 16 to 18 He says, I will ask the Father, he'll give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you. He's talking about himself. I will come to you in spirit form, he says. I will be there in the early church. I will be there beside you. The Father will send me. You know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Very powerful words. So let's, um, let's close with this word from, a verse from Romans 8. This one that we left aside. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness... We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit itself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. There might be somebody in your meeting who's elderly and sick. What should you pray for? Should you pray for healing? Or should you pray that they may slip away peacefully, quietly, to await the resurrection? You have other situations in front of you. Do you pray for one thing? Do you pray for another thing? In our weakness, we don't know what is best. There are some times when we know exactly what we want to pray for when we know exactly what we desire God would do for us. And so we pray that. In other times, we don't know and we're in a torment of indecision. And this scripture says, that doesn't matter. Put your indecision before God and Jesus will get involved. He's not going to intercede with God with, gods that cannot, with groans that cannot be expressed. He's going to be involved in the world in ways that you can't put into words in accordance with God's will because this is what God has appointed him for, to intervene in the life of the saints. It's very powerful teaching. So we've come to the end, and time has more than gone. Um, Many, many principles that we've covered in this last week. I'd like just quickly to take two minutes, if I may, just to review them, and then we'll, um, we'll stop. First set of principles were about Jesus being just like one of us. Let's not come up with a notion of of theology which makes Jesus different from us. The Scripture makes it very clear. He's the same as us. He had the same temptations, the same kinds of things that you face, he faced. 
but he overcame them all. That he died not as a a response to some God requirement, not to change God, but to make a profound difference to us, to change us, to make us different. And everything that God does in the work of salvation is there to give us confidence, to draw us to him, to reach out to us, to say, you can come to me, you can come to my presence. And don't think that the sacrifice of Christ was simply Calvary. Jesus gave all of his life. He emptied himself, says the Scripture. He gave the whole of his life uh, to save us. And again, his death itself wasn't the thing that God wanted per se. God wanted Jesus to put himself in our power so that we could see the sinfulness of sin. He was murdered by sinners like us. God didn't want him dead. God wanted him to be in our power, and it was we who chose to murder him. And we chose the way in which we would murder him. And by we, I mean people just like us. Also, we see that his resurrection is as important as his death for our salvation. We can, and we saw today more about that, how desperate Jesus was so that he could come out of the grave, so that he could continue the work that his father had entrusted to him, so that he could be working with the disciples. Faith and trust has always been the basis of salvation. It's never changed. God doesn't do salvation by one mechanism one time, another mechanism another time. He might place different discipline on us at different times, different ways, different things that he wants us to do in order to come to him. But the basis by which salvation works has always been trust in God. And fundamentally, it's God's work. All he needs from us is to actually want it. And that's the biggest challenge. Sometimes we sort of kind of want it, but we don't really want it. He says, if you want it, I can bring it about. Trust me. Trust me and and I can bring it about. Sin, it's something God just places aside. If we don't want to be sinners... If God is renewing us, recreating us in Christ, the past sins become irrelevant to him. And he says, I'll just put them aside. But if actually those sins describe who we are and the kind of person we want to be, then God just leaves them there. So sin is forgiven, not paid for. God in all of this is the Savior. It all comes from God. It's all derived from God. And Jesus is Savior on God's behalf. Everything the Son does is to the honor of the Father. The book of life, we saw, is being written now. Our trial is now. Now is when we're being tested. Now is when we're being refined. Now is when we and the Father both discover who we're really like. What is it that we really want? Do we want eternity or don't we want eternity? And then two principles from today. God is on our side. We never have to be arguing with God to try and convince him to love us. He loves us. He already loves us. He's already on our side. And Jesus, 
his work in his ministry and his continuing work now is to intercede in our lives, to guide us, to lead us. Sometimes he does that perhaps personally, sometimes through the angelic hosts that are under his direction, guiding us. Sometimes it's through our brothers and sisters. We are the body of the Lord. We are his mouth sometimes, his hands, his heart. And we can be part of the intercessory work of Christ with our brothers and sisters, interceding where they need help, where they need us to reach out. It's been a very powerful journey that the Scripture lays out to us. Our Savior isn't dead. Our Savior is a living, active Lord who's been perfected, who shows us the way to go, who forgives our failure, who brings us to his Father, and who stands beside us to help us. In all of this, may God be praised. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.